Welcome back for another episode of The Break Room. I'm your host, Morgan Hensley, and today's topic is women's health care. This year marks the 35th anniversary of the landmark report of the Public Health Service Task Force on Women's Health Issues. Since then, from both a business as well as clinical perspective, women's health care has made incredible strides. The National Institutes of Health now include far more women in clinical research. The Food and Drug Administration requires drug makers and medical device manufacturers to test safety and effectiveness for men and women in order to gain approval. Overall, women in America today are living longer and healthier lives, although many disparities remain. Today's guest is Melissa Montague. Melissa is the Vice President and General Manager of Privia Women's Health and Pediatrics. Her primary role includes driving new growth and ancillary services, developing a national platform and value-add offerings for both service lines, and improving performance and value-based payer arrangements. We'll discuss opportunities to advance value-based care in women's health, the role of telehealth, strategies to reduce burnout among OBGYNs, healthcare consumerism, the patient experience, and much more. So thanks again for tuning in. I hope you enjoy the show today. Melissa, thank you so much for coming on The Break Room today. Um, I wanted to start out the episode by asking you, what are some of the most overlooked aspects when it comes to women's health care? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. So, you know, for as I think about it, I would say that healthcare coverage, um, access to care, and affordability are probably the most overlooked aspects of women's healthcare. And those are areas that, you know, uh, we as providers, we as executives, we as um, government officials and others need to really focus on to make sure that women are truly getting the healthcare coverage they need. Um, specifically, the areas that uh, probably need to be looked at the most from just a true clinical perspective are maternal health, reproductive health, um, certainly cancers that affect women, um, HIV, sexually transmitted infections, um, violence against women is a huge issue that we all still need to face as both a society and as individuals that take care of women's health, um, mental health, and certainly the I guess the continuum of coverage from the young as well as the aging populations on the spectrum are very, very important um, aspects to women's health care and just general uh, in general opportunities for treatment and being able to have access to that treatment. Those are some interesting examples. You know, while I'm certain we've made great progress in recent years, uh, it, it, it certainly underscores how much work there is left to be done uh, in the field of women's health care. I've seen studies lately that indicate uh, women make the majority of health care decisions. Uh, some analysts estimate that number might be high, as high as 80%. So what does this data tell us about the healthcare industry? And given the rise of healthcare consumerism, the direction that it's headed in. Yeah, women comprise 80% of the US healthcare workforce. And that's a that's a huge figure. And when you think about it in that sense, um, you know, the vast majority of our workforce is truly women. I mean, they're taking care of not only other women, but, you know, everyone um, along the continuum there. And, you know, if you think further, 90% of 
nurses are women, um, huge, huge majority. They cover all sorts of positions, whether it's physicians, as I mentioned, nurses, but nutritionists, physical therapists, lactation consultants, you know, all of those positions are held by women and care is really truly being provided by women in that sense. Um, no surprising, women tend to be caregivers. The interesting fact from an industry standpoint is that roughly only 21% of all healthcare executives are actually women. And so while our workforce um, is for the vast majority of women, our executive letter level leadership is not. And so I think one area of focus for our industry is to really start to help women excel where they want to, um, to those leadership roles, whether it's in physician governance, whether it's in hospital leadership, whether it's in you know, private practice management of physician practices. Um, those areas will really, really start to allow women to bring more to the healthcare environment. From a consumer perspective, you know, women visit uh, physicians more frequently. They ask uh, more questions during their exams. They tend to be um, take more ownership and responsibility of healthcare. And they certainly, as you've noted, drive 80% of all healthcare decisions. They are the consumer. And so the interesting part about that is while men are um, historic, the males historically are driving the executive level decisions. It's really women who are making the decisions. And so sometimes that can lead to a bit of a gender gap. And so I think we have to think about it from those perspectives and how then do we integrate the desires of women within the healthcare system. That's an interesting angle you bring up uh, that male and female patients, broadly speaking, have different wants when it comes to their patient experiences. Tell me a little bit about what some of those key differences are. Sure. Um, I think, you know, if you think about women, no surprise, um, you know, they tend to be much more uh, proactive. Again, they're very, very knowledgeable. They often do their homework. They want to take responsibility and have the conversation with their physicians and their providers about the care, about preventative medicine, about, you know, understanding what's actually going on with them. They want to talk about it. And that's a characteristic that we know is probably more, um, more in tune with women than it is necessarily men. And they take that into their healthcare space and into that environment. I th certainly think that's a very important one. They also are very um, thoughtful about physician and provider reputation. So all of that social media and understanding, especially from a provider's perspective, how um, you're being viewed uh, from you know, your consumers is very, very important to women. It helps them make decisions. I mean, as a woman myself, we all know that when we need a provider, what do we do? We call our friend and say, who do you like? Who's your provider? And so that's what we do. Um, so those things are very, very important. If I was thinking about my physicians and providers and my other executive colleagues, the things that I would say to them just in basic, you know, don't be afraid to actually share complex information with women. They want it and they want to understand what it means in most cases. Um, Take time to listen. Again, we're women. We like to talk about things. That's our nature. So take time with them to actually talk about it. And while telemedicine is very, very important, um, virtual visits and all the other scenarios there in today's environment, 
They also like to be seen in person sometimes, that face-to-face -face contact, that's extremely important to women. Um, respect their time. They're busy. They're crazy busy. They're trying to manage families. Many of them are trying to work themselves. So take their time serious. Don't don't have them wait in an office for three hours in order to then have their visit. That that will not work for them. So you have to be kind of respectful of that and try to figure out how to manage that within your practice and your workflows um, within your offices. And then, you know, again, proactively manage your reputation online because that's, again, how women actually um, do things, you know. So um, understand that piece of them and try to work around that. I think, you know, on the other side, men men are um, much more likely probably to put off some of their visits, not be quite as proactive. They allow their wives or others to help manage that for them. So really just sort of stay focused on the fact that women are driving 80% of the healthcare and try to understand the characteristics around that. To that point that, that women in fact make roughly 80% of healthcare decisions, there's unfortunately a real irony there uh, historically, men are considered the default patient. For example, clinical trials have studied just male participants only to find that women experience different symptoms or side effects. Uh, an infamous example of this is with heart attacks. The symptoms for men and women are different, but since we consider men to be the default, Sadly, women are less likely to survive a heart attack because we're less trained to identify their symptoms. So what I'm wondering is, from the business side of the equation, what are some of our similar biases and blind spots, and how do they impact the delivery of women's health care? Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting um, question, you know, Morgan, because it, you're, you're correct. I think... Um, even to the level, just as you've noted, in general, research for the most part was never really um, conducted on on women in that in that scenario. And um, so now, of course, you know, through the National Institutes of Health Revitalization Act, um, certainly all federally funded clinical studies are required to include women in those clinical trials. Um, and that is certainly in and of itself as those trials are occurring and better um, healthcare improvements are uh, stemming from them, um, certainly that has improved women's health, you know, overall and will continue to. Um, so I think, you know, for our purposes, the key is really to make sure that we're always trying to tackle gender biases um, in this and trying to uh, promote, again, active involvement of women in all aspects of healthcare and trying to then, you know, make sure that um, both our trials, all of the research on whether it's medicine or uh, new procedures and those types of things are all equally looking at women's health care um, in that so that we have good access and appropriate uh, care and coverage being provided to women. That's so true. Uh, it's like we said at the beginning of the show, a lot of great work's been done, but a lot more work remains when it comes to eliminating these disparities. With that in mind, uh, one of the major disparities we see is that OBGYNs, a specialty that's predominantly women, 80% or so, tend to experience much higher rates of burnout than many of their peers. 
what are some of the ways we can lower burnout for these doctors? Yeah, that, that's an extremely important question. <clears throat> and again, um, although uh, those individuals who work in the women's health space uh, do have a much stronger burnout rate than other specialties, um, as you've noted, um, it, it really does affect physicians across the board. I mean, burnout is such a huge issue at this point, um, particularly for those specialties that are much more challenging, see lots of trauma, you know, things like that. Um, you also have to be very, very careful of um, physician suicide. So, you know, if, as you see a physician walking down the path of burnout, um, trying to understand and how, how do you stop it? Um, how do you help them before it gets to a really, really bad place? Um, and, you know, in my experience, I mean, I think as you think about the um, specialty in general related to uh, women's health providers or OBGYNs, um, there's a number of factors in that. Um, there, you know, certainly on the spectrum, there are more women providers within that particular specialty. So they are managing multiple things. Again, to our earlier points, not only managing their work and their career, but they're often managing their families and the health of their families and all these other, other pieces that, not to say men don't, uh, but women some somehow try to take it on more and more and try to be a little bit of the superwomen um, in that sense. And so I think our job as executives and um, just individuals that work within healthcare is to number one, help them see it, um, to try to, if you see a physician in that place that they're starting to experience burnout, address it, stop and talk to them about it, try to tackle it, try to help them come up with a plan that will um, turn the burnout back and, and, and reverse and um, get them back in a better place in their life. Um, some of the things that I have found to be effective, and I know certainly on a national level, others have found to be effective as well, is to really start to try to help them uh, balance out their life a little bit. So look at um, work-life balance and can you um, do different types of scheduling that allow them a little bit of time out of the office where they can focus on things other than medicine as their passion, um, whether it's their families, whether it's something they love to do, you know, try to get them re-engaged in some of those things. Um, certainly one of the biggest things that impacts burnout in today's um, physician environment is our electronic health records or EHRs, trying to um, make those workflows and efficiencies the best you can so that, and the most efficient so that you can optimize them and get um, physicians out of the office and back at home and back engaged in other parts of their life. So those are the types of things that I um, have found to be effective. I think what I would end with is just saying flexibility, trying to understand that our world is getting much more complex as we um, regulate healthcare to a higher level, as we have, you know, a crisis and um, all sorts of things that are occurring even in today, as we sit today having this conversation around a pandemic and how do we manage those things, trying to help people have flexibility where they can manage their medicine and their passion for medicine and care with having a life that allows them a little bit of time outside of work. Um, those would be the types of things that I would suggest to someone and things that I think we have to be thoughtful about how to manage. 
And then, you know, maybe one other thing, Morgan, I think I would add also wellness programs, you know, making sure that from a human resources perspective, or even if you're only a small group of providers um, that has one or two uh, physicians or providers in your office, making sure you have a wellness program that is thoughtful, not only for your providers, but also your staff, because it carries over into staff. Um, and again, many of those are women who are providing that um that workforce and that team. And so making sure that you truly have a wellness program that does try to address some of these issues, helps with stress, um, you know, those types of things. Absolutely. Like you say, there is no quick fix, no cure-all for burnout, unfortunately. It takes a multifaceted approach to combat it. Another issue that's widespread, but particularly concentrated in women's healthcare is the physician shortage. The Association of American Medical Colleges reported that half of U.S. counties lack a single OBGYN. With that in mind, what are some of the ways we can either reduce this shortage or use the resources we have more effectively, uh, more efficiently to cut down on it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. And um, to your point, ACOG, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists, in today's world estimates there were about 8,000 uh, OBGYNs shorter than needed. Um, and I think future estimates even get that up to somewhere around 22,000 in a not so distant future. Um, that is a huge number. And if you think about that across the spectrum, that's just within women's health providers or OBGYN specifically, um, but that really does start to cover many other specialists as well that also will focus on women's health needs overall. Um, the ways that I think that we could be a, a bit more effective or at least try to work on some of these issues, um, certainly, and some that I've actually seen personal, uh, you know, have personal knowledge of that have been effective, is really starting to advocate for additional federal funding and state funding where appropriate, um, talking to legislature, um, legislators about you know, having more uh, money funded towards these um, academic centers uh, and then actually having more residency positions available within the particular specialists and areas that are needed uh, for women's health medicine. Um, so just continuing to lobby, advocate, um, being an advocate for women's health providers and trying to get that word out uh, to the individuals that control the funding. Um, and then hopefully at the same time, you know, your academic centers and other um, medical institutions can start to work on developing very uh, creative programs and solutions that are going to try to tie um, that educational process to also some of your rural areas and being able to generate access. I know um, in one of my uh, prior positions that I held, um, we actually used to do professional development awards where we would um, actually, while they were in training, work with you know physicians or soon to be physicians and give them money, you know, so much money per year that would actually tie them to the organization and they would be committed to going to underserved um, areas or rural areas where you really do need access to care. Um, so there's a lot of those creative types of programs out there. And I think it behooves not only individual practice,
practices, but large organizations that work with physicians to try to institute some of those types of opportunities. Um, and, you know, there's also, I'm sure, many other uh, creative ways, but certainly one of the largest, um, although a very, very challenging specialty and also a very, very um, heavy time commitment specialty, um, OBGYNs are generally compensated at a far less rate than other specialists. And that's despite the fact that they go into the hospital at all times of the day or night, 365 days a year to make sure that women and their children and babies are um, born appropriately and with good care. Um, so maybe, you know, trying to compensate um, them in a more fair, uh, fair and equitable way. And then even within that, you find that women are not compensated at the same as men. So trying to make that across the board, much like we were talking about earlier, truly trying to um, build all of that up and make sure that women are embraced in the same way within the specialty. Um, and then, you know, I, to your earlier point on burnout, that's certainly another piece. I mean, when you think about the specialty, because you have to be in and out of the hospital and you know, 365 days a year, really, truly trying to understand some of the concerns and why um, individuals are not choosing to go within that specialty and then try to actually work through those in a way that's meaningful. So as those students are sort of choosing um, what their specialty is going to be, that women's health becomes an area that they want to focus on. One of the tools we have to help alleviate the OBGYN shortage, uh, especially in those counties that don't even have one provider is telehealth. As long as a patient and their provider have a stable internet connection, they can you know, be miles apart and still connect with one another. What are some of the ways OBGYNs can leverage this technology to stay connected with their patients and enhance that patient-provider relationship? Yeah, uh, telemedicine is very, very important and again, all specialties, but um, women's health, no different. Um, there are a number of different types of care that can be done virtually and can be done very appropriately um, through a virtual platform. And so I think um, what's important is for our physicians and their practices to understand what type of telemedicine capabilities they have and what they want to offer in terms of um, care and protocol as it relates to virtual visits and telemedicine. And then, you know, how do they want to use that on a go forward basis? There are just some things within our specialty that have to be done in person, um, but there are numerous other things that, that can be done virtually. So let's try and do them. Um, the one area that I think we will start to see uh, in the future as we move forward and as um, the world has changed and telemedicine is such a vital, important piece of what we're doing, we need to be able to have remote patient monitoring. So think about a woman who is pregnant and you know, maybe um, she's a little bit at risk and it's not good for her to come in the office. Well, you know, what is the scenario by which if you think about the normal course of a pregnancy and you have X amount of visits in the office, you know, can three or four of those visits be done at home through some sort of remote patient monitoring solution where we can understand whether she's, you know, her weight is um, increasing like it's supposed to and, you know, all these other various pieces, clinical pieces of the business, whether 
those things are occurring so that naturally you can monitor both mom and um, baby in that sense, um, fetus in that sense, and whether things are working uh, the way that they're supposed to. Um, and I think those are exciting things that we should be looking forward to, and many are. And as physicians and providers, we should be embracing that technology and trying to figure out how to best utilize it within, within care. To our earlier discussion um, about time and about, you know, that's uh, one of the most important things for women. Um, I think we're going to find that the world as we know it today is demonstrated that we can do virtual visits at a much higher level and people are going to turn to that. So um, high, you know, big professionals um, with women who are very, very highly engaged in their jobs and their careers, they may not want to take three hours out of the office to go um, have a visit. So I think we're going to find that telemedicine is going to be a vital part of women's health uh, going forward. Your mention of telehealth and uh, remote patient monitoring for maternal care dovetails perfectly into my next question. I've noticed payers such as United Healthcare are building bundled payment programs around maternal care, essentially treating prenatal, uh, delivery, and postpartum care as an episode. That's one of the ways we're seeing value-based care in women's health, but I want to know, what are some of the other ways? Yeah, I mean, so you're definitely right. And one of the uh, the current things that's being done is these true episodes of care around um, the perinatal or maternal bundle, as you might call it. So covering from prenatal delivery through postpartum um, and actually thinking of that as one episode of care and trying from a physician's perspective, trying to manage that patient in a way that we are truly uh, providing the best care possible in the most cost-effective way um, and giving them the highest quality. Um, you know, so that is certainly a big one. The other one that's out right now um, is a hysterectomy episode of care. So similar, you know, sort of pre and post the actual procedure itself and trying to manage that and provide the best quality for, um, you know, the best, best cost as well. I. I suspect at some point we're going to start to see those evolve into not only including our piece of the puzzle with the women's health OBGYN providers, but also including the neonatology component where once baby is delivered, trying to manage that piece of the care as well. And so, so truly taking it through the full continuum of you know, a woman identifies that she's pregnant, it goes all the way through that process to then now baby being delivered and taken care of, you know, maybe even through their first visit outside of the hospital. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see where it evolves. Um, but I think there are definitely um, some areas there that we will see that occurring. Um, I would not be surprised if we also um, saw some other procedures that might, much like the hysterectomy bundle, we might see some other procedures that might fit into that naturally. Um, and then again, this remote patient monitoring is going to be a big change. So can we um, become more efficient at managing quality, but also managing cost through these other types of um, opportunities through telemedicine and uh, ways to look at that? So it should be interesting as we move forward. It is very interesting and it's very exciting. I know we have focused a lot on disparities today, and rightfully so. There are still a lot of them, uh, unfortunately. 
but I want to end the show on a positive note and, and pose the question to you of what are some of the most exciting advancements and opportunities out there today in the field of women's health? Yeah, well, so, you know, I, I think I'll sum it up by this. I mean, we've talked a lot about various different things, but the reality is, you know, here in the last number of years, we've seen that um, a female or woman's lifespan has actually increased. Um, we've seen that women are now included in clinical trials and actually evaluated for future care and improvement. Um, there has been significant work around cancer treatment specifically for women. Um, certainly we've seen increases in uh, breast cancer screening and um, you know the technology capabilities for that. I think we'll continue to see technology advancements as we go and that will be incredibly um, amazing and even probably um, you know beyond the technology aspects it will demonstrate um, more and more uh, indivi individuals being, um, better cared for and, and having better outcomes, certainly. Um, you know, I think the areas that we probably continue to focus on are um, all sorts of things. You know, again, some of those cancer treatments that we talked about earlier, um, certainly some of the um, just general everyday uh, wellness, certainly violence against women, while it's not truly within the necessarily the scope of OBGYN specifically, but it's women's health. And I think that's a huge one that comes up for all providers who take care of of women and and we have to think about those things and, and you know again that's a lot of the social aspects to that but nonetheless they're there um i think we'll see some further work done around cervical cancer prevention um that certainly will be a key one and then just you know federal funding um i mean you know the more federally funded dollars that can actually go towards women's health, um, I think the more advancement and more improvements we'll start to see. Um, you know, certainly there's been and will continue to be uh, birth control improvements and other things around allowing women to manage their own health. Um, and, and where do we go with that? Um, and then, you know, I, I think just generally speaking, uh, d decrease in deaths and overall, again, outcomes to uh, the better outcomes and better care. Um, and uh, hopefully, given that women um, take care or think about the healthcare space in such a good way that they're going to elevate it even naturally to a place that starts to allow for everyone, not just women, but everyone to get better health overall through, through some of their aspects. And especially as they, you know, start to drive into leadership roles and bring new things to the table. There certainly is a lot to be excited about when it comes to the future of women's health. Um, so with that, Melissa, thank you so much for coming on The Break Room today. Uh, it was a pleasure having you as a guest, and I look forward to having you back on the podcast someday. Thank you. I appreciate it, Morgan. Thanks again for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you'd like to learn more about the many developments in women's health care, visit the Privia Health blog, InformMD. We'll be back next month for another episode of The Break Room. See you then.